0: Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Darren, and I am the pastor here, but today I uh, have a little bit of a day off. And we're going to have a kind of an unusual sermon this morning. I wanted to tell you why. So uh, without much debate, the most consequential event in the history of the church since the time of Christ was the Protestant Reformation, uh, as, spirit, as spirited through Martin Luther. And Martin Luther, the the way that the Reformation came about is that he saw writing in Scripture that he didn't understand, and he said that he beat on St. Paul until he understood it. And so this morning, we're going to have what's a very obscure Scripture passage, but nonetheless one that is in Scripture, and we have someone very talented at beating on the Scriptures until... Uh, the beauty of God and the beauty of His ways are brought out, and so I'm excited for you to hear from the Reverend Dr. Sam Andreas as he brings to us this lovely passage. Welcome.
1: Okay, there we go. Well, good morning. Good morning. It's spring. It is spring. Yeah. Can you say amen, somebody? <laughs> It is a happy time and it's glorious, the, the, the earth is green, and it's a time when many thoughts turn to romance, right? It's, uh, it's the weather is warm, you're feeling better, you're feeling comfortable again, it's the season of love. And as we are thinking about that, you know there, there's <clears throat> a lot of things going on in your lives. I thought it would be good this spring to talk about relationships, especially starting a relationship, because if you're here, you're single, maybe you're excited about someone in your life that you'd like to get to know, or maybe there isn't someone in your life, but you're still excited about getting to know someone. Uh, If you're married, uh, we're entering a season where there are many anniversaries coming up. So romance is in the air. It's a good time to think about relationships, a good time to think about what's important in starting a relationship. And I thought, the best place to do that is to turn to Old Testament law. <laughs> <Right>? And actually, <laughs> thank you. I hear that. Amen. Specifically, that part of Old Testament law, the, the Deuteronomical code pertaining to the conduction, to, to the conducting of war. Makes sense, right? <laughs> Actually, this passage fits into Darren's series on Exodus. You know, Pastor Darren has been leading us through the beginning of the book of Exodus to start out where where the people of Israel are being led out of Egypt by Moses, and they're being led away. This is the end of that. That's the beginning. This is the end of that account. This comes from Deuteronomy. the, The shores of the Jordan River, they're camped out, and they're about to go into the Promised Land, and God is telling them how to conduct the war that's necessary to take the promised land for the people of Israel. So this is where they're headed in the Exodus. Now I know as soon as I talk about war, this might be difficult for many of us who might say, whoa, you know, if you don't have war in your memory, or you don't have the, the, the remember the remembrance of, of a what you would consider a just war in your in your memory, it might be hard to to actually accept even the beginning of this teaching. Uh, and if that's where you're at, I just want to take a couple minutes before we read the passage and set the context here about war in the Bible. Because God, we do have to accept that God does sometimes tell his people to go to war, that he did in the past for a certain time. And so if you're having trouble with that, let's just, let's just enter into here what war in the Bible was like, because it's different. And God is very clear that in the Bible, when he told his people, the Israelites, to go to war, it was only when the people they were warring against were doing something worse than the damage that war would incur. And he's very upfront about that. War only happens, God only has a war against the people when what they're doing is worse than what, what happens in war, because what happens in war is pretty bad. And God knows that. In fact, you know, we're talking about the Exodus. And if you've you've been reading along, as we've been reading along the beginning of the Exodus, you might be asking, as the Israelites asked, why did this take so long? You know, hundreds of years, God's people were in Egypt, you know, and, and then he brought them out of Egypt. But why did it take so long? 400 years they're in that land being oppressed having their babies thrown into the Nile River you know being forced into this labor day after day after day I mean this is God's people and they were asking as you might be asking why did it take so long well God actually tells them why it took so long before he delivered them before he sent this this deliverer Moses before that happened he tells them why it took so long. Actually, in Genesis chapter 15, when he's talking to Abraham, and he's telling them, telling Abraham what's going to happen to his descendants. And he tells them that they're going to be going into Egypt, and they're going to be there for hundreds of years. And he tells them why. And the answer is very simple. You know what it was? He tells them it's because the Canaanites aren't bad enough yet? That's the answer. Because if he's leading them out of Egypt and leading them into, he's got to lead them somewhere, right? He's got to take them to some place. And the place he wants to bring them is Canaan. And the people in Canaan aren't bad enough to justify a war against them. That's what he says to Abraham. In other words, there there wasn't enough child sacrifice going on yet. There wasn't enough violence in the society. There wasn't enough desecration of the image of God in them. So he can't justify them going to war yet. So they wait. And when they do actually have this war in the Old Testament, it is a highly circumscribed activity. It is of a limited extent, of limited duration and with severe limitations on how it is carried out. and God is very strict about that. He says to the Israelites, "You know, when I'm bringing you to war, you have to do it this way, you have to do it exactly this way. And if they don't, and at times they didn't, then what happens? The sword is turned against them for not conducting war in this very circumscribed way that God says to do. And the contours of that war we're, we're told about, if you, if you read in the books of of Exodus and Numbers and in the book of Joshua, we see the contours of the war that God carried out. <clears throat> and, uh, and what happens to the people whom they were against, it very much depends on their reaction to what God is bringing on the earth at that time, the kingdom of God on earth. And you find that sometimes there's complete annihilation. Sometimes there's peace made with the people. When they accept, when they say, "We recognize what God is doing here in the earth," and sometimes it's something in between. Most most cultures were just too far gone uh, to have anything like peace. But in this case, the passage we're about to read pertains to the situation when you take captives. When you're in a situation where where not everybody's wiped out, and you have these women captives. Okay. So what you've got here, before we, before, right before we read it is to realize you've got a situation where you've got clear male conquerors and clearly conquered females. So I want you to recognize this is a, this, these are women in a very vulnerable situation. Very vulnerable. Especially in uh, the, the conditions of the ancient Near East. Because in the ancient Near East... When you had a war and you won, uh, the conquered women were were basically disposable property. You had your way. You did whatever you want with them, and there were no rules. Except not here. In fact, you can tell the way it was like. You know, we get a picture of this in Judges chapter five, where we're given a picture of a pagan nation that goes to war, and the and the general that goes to war, his mother is waiting for the general to return, General Sisera. And she's at the lattice work. She's looking through the window, and she's waiting. She's wondering, how come it's taking so long for him to come home? And then she says, oh, I remember. I know why. It's because, you know, after you win a battle, you know, the, the guys take two or three women each and have their way. Basically, you know, they rape two or three women because that's what you do after an ancient Near East battle. You, the soldiers go in and they have their way with two or three women. So that's why he's taking so long. That's the way it was in the ancient Near Eastern uh, situation, the cultural situation when people went to war, but not here. Not with the Israelites. So that's the situation. You've got these female captives. You've got the male soldiers. And in that situation, a male soldier sees a woman that he wants. What happens? What happens? Well, let's read. Please stand with me as uh, you're able. And we look at Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy chapter 21. And we're going to begin reading, as it says here in your bulletin, with verse 10 to verse 14. Again, it's Deuteronomy chapter 21. If you want to follow along in your Bibles, I'm reading in the ESV version. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife and you bring her to your ho- home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that, you may go in to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So as, uh, as Darren mentioned, we're going to be having this t- Q&A time here after the service. We're going to call it Nuts and Bolts. And we're doing this because I have found in talking to you that the people of Ironworks really do want to understand uh, the scriptures. It seems to me you really do, many of you want to go deep into what the scriptures say and understand them. And that's going to result in having questions. If you want to go deep, there are going to be questions that you have. And so we wanted to provide a forum for you to be able to do that and try to make it easy for you while you're still here. So about 10 minutes after the service, we're going to go for about 20 minutes here. And um, you can make note of that as you're listening to the sermon, if there are questions that you have as I'm speaking. We want to be able to have you, you know, give a forum for you to say that, or even a place for you to be able to say, well, you know, I don't see it that way. And, and uh, that's allowed, too. And we can have discussion about that. We wanted to make it easy. So we're going to set up a booth here. I'm going to sit over some water And you're going to throw questions, and then, you know, I might get dunked. No, we're we're not going to do that, but we're going to provide that for you. And we're going to see, your your pastor is very adventurous. So we're going to see if that's helpful to you. I'm going to try it out. Okay, so two ways to read Old Testament law. And this is just some hermeneutical advice for you as you're reading your Bible. Okay, there's two ways to read Old, Old Testament law. One, you can read it in conjunction with the things that were going on in the ancient Near Eastern culture at that time, to say something really bad, to make it look like what's really going on is actually something pretty bad. Or you could read the law that you're reading in light of and in conjunction with the whole Pentateuch, the whole five books of Moses, the other laws that God has given them, to see the wisdom, the practicality, and the righteousness of what's being prescribed in that law. So here's what I mean. To read this well, the first thing you have to come into your mind as you're reading it is is the Ten Commandments. Because this is given in conjunction with the Ten Commandments, specifically the Seventh Commandment, which tells us there is no, folks, there is no sexual activity outside of wedlock in the Israelite community, okay? Okay. There is not any kind of, any allowance for sex outside of marriage. So when you read that, you got to be careful to, to, to read it that way so that you understand what's going on in this passage. For example, that verse 14, that word for humiliated there isn't necessarily sexual. When it says you've humiliated her, it's not because he has had sex with her. That word is used in general for any kind of general humbling or dishonor that might happen, okay? And that has happened in this woman, but not um, because he has taken her in a physical way. And you, you need to understand that as you read this, verse, it's verse 13 or verse 14. It's not verse 13 then verse 14. It's verse 13 or verse 14. So let me, let me just tell you how it works, okay? Okay? There they are. They finish the battle. You have these captive women, and there's a soldier among, the, among this, uh, the army that sees a woman, wants to have her. Okay? But he can't have her because this is not typical ancient Near Eastern culture war. Right? This is, he can't have her. That's not the way it works in, in the, among the Israelites. And yet, there's a possibility that he might have her. And the first thing to recognize here, I, I, I want us to feel it, because it's something the Bible says to us. And that is uh that sexual desire for the other gender is something good. Okay, the nobility of sexual desire here is first of all affirmed. Sex, if you have a desire for someone of the opposite sex, it's not something bad in the Bible, it's something good. Okay, now. We tend to think of it as something, oh, bad or, or dirty, and that's because very quickly in us it can become something bad, right? It gets twisted in our hearts to lust or to, you know, what uh, people have, what is such a problem today with pornography and addiction to pornography. But the, but the actual desire for someone of the, of the opposite gender is something that's good in the Bible. The nobility of it here is affirmed. It's got to be directed, it's got to be It's gotta be going in the right direction. So, there is a possibility for this soldier, and it's just a little thing. It's just this ritual that he has to go through. Nothing really hard, and it's just a month. I mean, what's a month to a man's passion, right? Just this little ritual. And what is this ritual? This ritual of passion. Well, let's look at it from his perspective. Let's do that this morning. First, from his perspective. What does he do? Well, four things. Verse 13. Whatever it was (laughs) that she was wearing when he decided he wanted her, she has to change out of that into normal clothes. Now, you, you could probably just imagine what a woman might wear when her town was being under siege to increase her chances of survival as this war, as this battle ended, you could just imagine what she might wear to increase her chances of survival. Well, whatever that was, she has to take it off, change into normal clothes. That's number one. Number two, she has to shave her head completely off, uh, hair completely off. Okay? Now, this, this would be disgraceful. This would be a, a certainly humiliating. This would be a humbling experience. And it's very important for this to be part of what's going on. And, and to help us enter into what this law is saying, the experience of this law, I, I want to I embark in a little exercise this morning. I hope that you can bear with me. It's for all of you who came today as a couple. If you're a woman... And you came today and you, you had a guy with you, whether it's a boyfriend or husband, whatever. Well, not whatever. Boyfriend or husband. <laughs> <laughs> if you came today as a woman and you have a guy with you and he's sitting next to you, I want you to do something with me, uh, for me. I want you to close your eyes, okay? And keep them closed for a few moments. Okay, don't worry. I won't let anything bad happen to you. Okay, so if you would close your eyes, If you're the man who came with her, I want you to do something. I want you to turn and and position yourself to look at her, cock your head, and imagine her bald, completely bald, okay? Now, her eyes are closed, so she can't see the expression on your face right now, okay? I want you to get that picture. Look at her. Imagine her bald. Okay, now you could turn back, look at me, and uh, women, you could open your eyes. Okay, you don't have to look at him now. (laughs) You don't have to punch him. (laughs) Okay, I want that picture in your mind. I want you to imagine what it's like to live with her for a month like this. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, this wasn't about having the woman not look good. This is maybe a mourning practice. This is a practice of mourning that was going on. Maybe that's what they did back then is, you know, to mourn. They would shave their heads. Well, you might think that, except that among the Israelites, that was forbidden. In fact, the same book, Deuteronomy 14, it prescribes against specifically defacing yourself. If you're in mourning... You can't do do things to yourself. Specifically, you can't shave shave yourself. You can't mark your body or do anything like that if you're in mourning. And if you're trying to incorporate people into Israelite society, which is really what God was trying to do over several generations in this situation, uh, then you need to do that too. You can't, among the Israelites, you did not shave your head when you were mourning. Except here. And to add insult to injury... Verse 12, she can't do her nails. (laughs) Okay? So you've got this situation. She's bald in common dress with paired nails. And that is not the worst thing that this guy has to contend with. In addition to that, she is mourning. She's mourning. And so this man needs to live with... This morning person. Now I don't know if you what if if you know what it's like t- to live with a morning person. Oh, by the way, morning person, okay, you know. Um, I I don't mean you know someone like my wife when she gets up in the morning, chatter, 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 chatter. You know, not not that kind of morning person. <laughs> she wants to talk to people. I mean someone who's morning. If you've ever been in a, in a situation where you had to live with someone who is in mourning. A person who's mourning. It's not fun. It's actually difficult. Because that person is, uh, well, it's not fun to be around. And you might want to play a board game, and in the middle of it, you know, she'll burst out crying. (laughs) And you never know when she's going to burst out crying. It's just a sad situation, a sad circumstance. It would actually require a great deal of patience on the part of this soldier living with this woman now. So you think about that. Think about what it would be like to live with this woman. Think about how he might behave. That's from his perspective. Now, let's look at it from her perspective. Okay? During this month. You notice during this time, Everything's provided for her. Nothing is required of her, at least from what we can tell the passage. I mean, maybe she can help out around the house, maybe not. Certainly doesn't ask that of her. She can do whatever she wishes. And look at what she's confronted with. This woman is allowed to come into this man's home and see everything about him. His personal hygiene, how much money he has, and how he treats her when she is like this. How do you think that she might act if she is not in favor of this union? Okay, there's a lot happening in verse 13. And at the end of the month, he must decide whether he wants to spend the rest of his life with this woman. Again, this is before consummation of anything. This is verse 13 or verse 14. Either he marries her or else she goes out on her own. And out she goes, only now with a wedge cut, I guess. And verse 14 is expressed, it's written in a way to, to express the greatest possible bounds of freedom. It's really kind of extraordinary. The greatest possible bounds of freedom, that is. She could, if she has relatives in another country, if she can get safe passage, she can leave. She can completely leave uh, this, this uh, country of, is- of the Israelites, go to another country. And in, in, uh, in that part of the world, a lot of times there are families that span different, different areas. She could go to live with relatives. Or she could stay in this strange, new, unusual Israelite community as God was instructing them to set up, she could live, make a life for herself there, maybe marry someone else. Broadest possible terms of freedom. This is all what happens, and this is how it would work, this law. And all of it happens while the dignity and the rights of the captive woman are kept intact. Do you see what's going on here? This is a crash course in engagement counseling. (laughs) Why? Because each of them would be at their worst. You know, grief, I know some of you here really know grief. But when you have someone uh, in your family die, often it creates a distance between you and your spouse, um, if 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 you have someone in your other fa- in the other family die, it, there's often it often creates a world sometimes where the spouse really cannot enter in a a place where the spouse cannot really enter into the pain that you have. It actually, creates a distance, especially especially if that person might be part of the reason that you have your grief. You know, I look at the situation of this law, it reminds me of that movie with Tom Cruise called The Last Samurai. Because in that movie, the widow of the guy that, that Tom Cruise kills has, is required to nurse Tom Cruise back to health. And she's in this situation where I, I found, you know, moments were very touching, I found in the movie. Because you realize she has this decision to make. Is she going to forgive him, or is she gonna stew in resentment, or is she gonna you know, finish him off? Not too unlike, I think, what what we have in this kind of situation. And so both the man and the woman are tested. The man is tested, and he's tested in a way that most young husbands are tested. It's maybe your difficult trial as a young husband. Isn't this true, dear young husbands? Because he's being asked to give and show patience when he may be receiving nothing in return. And isn't that a trial, dear young husbands? That's when you have it hard. When you are being asked to give and give and to provide and to be in there while receiving nothing in return. Isn't that hard when the baby comes, for example, and suddenly you're not the focus of attention anymore? You know, it used to be great. It used to be all about you. Now there's this other person, you know, and you're being asked to give even when maybe you're not having physical relations. Maybe you're not even getting affection. (laughs) You're being asked to give. Isn't that where you're tried? Well, in this month, that's where this soldier is being tried ahead of time. And she's being tried. The woman's being tested. And she's also being tested in a way that young wives find particularly difficult. Isn't this true, dear young wives? When you're in a situation maybe feeling ugly or feeling humiliated, and he can't really enter into your pain. You're feeling this pain. You thought he could enter into but he really can't. And you're being asked to stay in there. Even when he doesn't understand. He just just doesn't get it. Isn't that hard? Isn't that when you might be at your worst? So you see both of them getting tried here at their worst. Both soldier and captive tested during that month. It's kind of a forced engagement but it's not one that we would design, (laughs) but it's one that showed the character of each of them. His in providing sustenance and patience while getting nothing in return, and hers in the midst of ugliness and resentment. Each one saw the other at their worst. And he could know during that time if this woman in front of him could overcome her pain. And she could know that, what, that this guy in front of her, if he could treat her this way when she was like this, she had somebody who would take care of her forever. Each of them could see that. And if they didn't, if she didn't see it, she could make it very clear what it would be like to live with her long-term. And if he didn't see it, he had a few weeks until it was over. It's a crash course in a post-infatuation phase of marriage. Because you know what marriage really comes down to? You know what marriage is really about? It is about precisely this. It is about how you are treated when you are at your worst. That's what makes a marriage. How you treat her when it seems like she's just ugly or she's focused on the baby instead of you or acting just like your mother and you just like her mother and you hate that. How do you treat her then? Do you turn away? Or do do you turn towards her? And how do you treat him when he's belligerent, or he's moody, or he's absent in responsibility taking that he should be, or that he's impatient or harsh? How do you treat him then when he's at that worst? You turn away. Or do you turn towards ironworks church this is where marriages are made these are the moments in which marriages are made or not how you are treated when you are at your worst how you're treated when you are at your worst. God, I love you. (laughs) By the way, I'm married to her. This was not just... This wasn't just some random person I just kissed. (laughs) Think this through. If you're going to understand this a lot, think about it, what it would be like as, as one of... If you're this young soldier, young soldier who goes through this a few times, these young, proud stags who goes through this a few times. Another battle, another shaved head. After a few times through this, even the roughest soldier is going to get it. Get what? Get what marriage is about. And more importantly, Yet what love is about. You know, God had a God had a greater purpose here, even than protecting the alien woman. And that was to teach the Israelite soldier something. Teach him what? Well, think about what he is being asked to go through. He has to love someone when she's bald, resentful, perhaps, giving nothing in return. And that love would transform her into a bride who would receive him. Okay? Love someone when she is bald, resentful, giving nothing in return, and that love would transform her into a bride who would receive him. To remind you of anything? To remind you of anybody? This was a little drama. This was a little play that was carried out in the gritty circumstances of soldier life in the ancient, severe Near Eastern culture to get this across. This was exactly what Israel was doing. And this is exactly what Yahweh was doing with Israel. And you can read the stories in Exodus and Numbers And see the way Israel was behaving. Sometimes the Israelites were at their worst. And when they were at their worst, God was in there with them. Hanging in there. Prolonging the engagement. He was loving Israel. When Israel was at their worst. So that for at least some of them, their hearts would be turned And to be married to him in love. That's what was going on in the exodus. And his love would transform the hearts of many of them to marry their hearts to him. And we see this kind of love fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because that's exactly what he did. He came to us when humanity was at its worst. And loved us. And gave his life. When we were resentful towards him. When we were resistant to the kingdom. When we were rejecting him. He came and gave his life. Think about how you used to be when you were rejecting him. Especially if you did not grow up in the church. Like me, I didn't grow up in the church. I used to to make jokes about God. I used to make jokes about him, you know, blasphemous. And it was really just veiled resentment, my veiled resentment against him. And it was at that time that he came calling out to me. And he kept calling out to me for a lot lot longer than a month. You know, the Israelite soldier did this for a month, but the Holy Spirit was doing it for me for a lot longer than a month incessantly enduring with me to transform my heart. And think on this, when you are at your worst this week, he is in there preserving the engagement with you. If he died for you, if he died for me when we were bald, ugly, resenting him, not giving What are you going to do now that's going to remove that love from you? And he did that for you. The way he treated you then so that you would know you have someone who will never forsake you. Let it transform your hearts. Because of what he did for you then. Because of what you know now about how attentive he is. Because of that. Think on this, that you were pursued and paid for while resentful, while ugly, so that you could always depend on his love. Think on this now as we turn to the Lord's table. Let's do so.